It's my privilege to bring the word to you this, this morning. Um, we're going to be doing so out of uh, 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses 1 through 5. So if you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to turn there now. Um, as is my custom, as whenever I bring the word, um, I like to remind everyone, this is God's word. That it, ha- it alone has the power to change hearts, to change minds, um, to change lives. So if you hear anything, hear, hear this. 1 Timothy 4. 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father God, we come humbly before your word. Um, We ask that it would be fruitful in our lives, Lord, that you would get me out of the way and that we would focus um, on where we should focus. Using your son's precious holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. There once was a man uh, who went by the name Dr. John Wilson. He was a, a doctor um, who came to the eastern U.S. in 1818. Um, if you were to Google the man, you wouldn't find any pictures because it was 1818. Um, but apparently there was some kind of Yelp type thing because there is a series of comments um, that has been recorded um, of, that his patients made about Dr. Wilson's uh, particularly misshapen body. Uh, some of his patients said, um, it looks as if he's smuggling baseballs under his suit. Um, another man said, his pronounced limp doesn't affect his bedside manner unless you ask him about it. And then he gets angry. Don't ask about the limp. Well, Dr. Wilson was a perennial bachelor, um, but he had a, a, a great community. He had a myriad of friends, close, close, dear friends. And before he died, he made a very strange request of those friends that he would be buried without anyone taking his suit off. He didn't want his, his suit to be removed. Uh, his friends, thinking this was some kind of uh, misplaced concern about modesty, initially agreed. But after his death, the mortician explained to the friends that um, that was actually impossible. You, you couldn't prepare the body um, unless um, you removed the suit. And so the friends relented of this request, uh, and the mortician began preparing the body uh, for, for embalming. The mortician, knowing this was Dr. John Wilson, was then very surprised when he began to examine the body and found just a multitude of scars, um, scars that, were, that looked like knife wounds and, and bullet holes. And as he began to dig deeper, he, he actually found a whole bullet lodged in the man's limp, uh, hip, which uh, had withered one of his legs, which, as you could guess, caused his, his limp. Well, that kind of sparked his friends to go search his home. Uh, and they, the quick search of Dr. Wilson's home revealed stashes and stashes of, of watches, jewelry, diamonds, um, and other personal items that were clearly not Dr. Wilson's. And the police then launched an investigation into this man's life. They found out very quickly that Dr. Wilson wasn't Dr. Wilson at all, but he was in fact an infamous Australian outlaw who, whose real name was Frederick Ward, but the authorities knew him as, and I'm not making this up, it's not a Marvel movie, this is, this is actually real life, 
uh, Captain Thunderbolt, knew him as Captain Thunderbolt. He himself, Frederick Ward himself, was actually the son of another infamous Australian outlaw known as Indefatigable. Um, so you can look that word up later. Um, but Captain Thunderbolt had sometime previous to 1818 escaped from the Australian authorities um, and, uh, after he had been sentenced to hard labor for horse theft, which at that time in history in the Australian bush was, uh, was basically a death penalty um, because, you know, if you still man's only mode of transportation out in the harsh heat uh, of Australia, um, like what are they going to do? Um, the misshapen body... Um, that his patients often commented on, um, they found out was the result of him wearing three suits, one on top of the other, um, to make him appear stockier and, and, and larger than he actually was. Uh, the watches, the jewels, uh, all that was, as you could guess, property of the various patients he had pickpocketed as he, as he treated them. And needless to say, Dr. Johns Wilson's friends were shocked to find out that their mild-mannered friend, their, this mild-mannered doctor, was actually an Australian outlaw, and that he, in fact, had fooled them for years with three suits and a story. He was not who he said he was. And this is what Paul is warning Timothy about in our text. This is, this is what Paul is concerned with, not an Australian outlaw with a ridiculous nickname, uh, but the falling away of people who really aren't who they say they are. You see, Timothy is Paul's mentee. It's a, Paul regards Timothy as his son in, in the faith, and he wants to see Timothy excel. And so as he hears that Timothy is going through what is possibly the most difficult thing that a church could, could go through, the apostasy of, of dear brothers and sisters in Christ, those who would leave the church and then speak, even speak ill of the church, um, he wants to, to deal with that just very upfront. He wants to be very um, candid with Timothy and, and, and also be very comforting to Timothy. You see, this is the most difficult situation that an ancient church or a modern church could face. And it's not just that you have to deal with the, the, the apostate themselves, but actually comforting and shepherding those dear brothers and sisters who had a, had a brother and sister in Christ leave leave for vain myths, leave for legalism, leave for apathy. And if you've been at the church for any amount of time, you, you may have experienced this um, or at least heard about it. Something like, you know, a, new, uh, a covenant child, they grow up and uh, though they went to every church, every youth group, um, though they went on every mission trip, um, they ate at every potluck. And if you're from Spartanburg, if, if they ate at every uh, if they ate that good, holy, sanctified mac and cheese at every potluck. Um, y- y'all got that? That's mac and cheese. We good? All right. That's cultural. That, that works. Uh, it, they ate all of that, and they, they, you think they, they think they're solid, and then they go off to college. And they come back, and they're hostile to the gospel. Or maybe it's the new convert, a friend, a, 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 a neighbor um, that you've maybe been praying for for ages, for months, for years, and they finally start coming to church, and it's like, praise God, they're coming to church, and then they, they profess Christ, like, hallelujah. And then months later, they, they reject it all, and they go back to their, their previous lifestyle. They go back to their previous beliefs, so they go back to a life of apathy. Or, or even worse, heaven forbid, the pastor who you've put your trust in, who you've, you've shared your life with, who's counseled you in the hardest moments of your life, who may have married you, um, they leave their family, leave the church, and they pursue a life with a mistress, 
Um, they, these are all the same. They're, they're thieves. They're outlaws in doctor's clothing. They aren't who they say they are. But our passage it has, a, has a very comforting word to us. Paul, when he opens up here in, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says... Now the Spirit expressly says, this, he's echoing this very similar form that we find, out, find throughout the Old Testament. Um, we find this, uh, this Old Testament saying, thus says the Lord, right? The prophets always preface their message like this. They're saying, hey, this is what God has to say to you. This is not my word, this is God's word. And so when Paul comes and breaks this out, you know he's being particularly serious. He's, he's being particularly upfront and saying, listen, this is not my opinion. This is not who, this is not anything else. This is God's word to you. We know that all of Paul's letters that we find is inspired by God, but this is, he's just really hitting it home. The Spirit expressly says, later times, people are going to fall away. This will happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And because, so that you know this, expect it and know that it's, it's not outside of God's sovereignty. Like this is going to happen. God is aware and God is active through it all. It's going to happen. So be prepared to offer a response to the lies. Be, re, be prepared to deal with those who dissent to the church's doctrine. Be prepared to comfort those brothers and sisters who are left reeling because their mentor or their their close friend, their best friend in the church leaves. Be prepared to to love them and guide them and walk with them. Paul then articulates the very specific heresy that Timothy is dealing with in this passage, and that's basically this this form of what's called asceticism. Um, Now, asceticism is basically just this belief that the more you deny yourself in this life, the more you deny joy in this life, well, then the more God has to bless you in the next life. That's that's kind of what he's dealing with. And that that seems kind of strange to us, right? Because, you know, we, we... we maybe are more prone to overindulgence. We're, we're, we're not really prone to, to deny ourselves, but to take more than we ought to. Uh, but today, the heart of this, this lie, the heart of this false teaching is, is alive and well, really kind of in the form of legalism. Uh, this, this form of, of works-based righteousness where, whereby you can somehow earn favor with, with God, that you can somehow earn God's grace or you can somehow earn God's love by what you do. With asceticism, it's like what you don't do, you earn God's grace. With legalism, it's what you do earns God's grace. They're kind of, they're, they're different, but the heart's the same. And so the, the issue is, you know, God's grace isn't free. That's what the, the false teachers are saying. God's grace, God's love is something you have to earn. Specifically, even more specifically here in Timothy, the issue at hand um, is this bad view concerning marriage and food. Some of these people are telling you you can't get married and that you have to follow the, the, the Jewish food laws. They're saying if you really want the best mansion in heaven with the most rooms, if you really want the, the biggest crown, or even, even maybe uh, more poignant to us, if, if you want the, the best that God has for your life now, right, then you, you have to do X, Y, and Z, or you have to abstain from X, Y, and Z. But Paul's response to all this nonsense, it's very simple. He's, I mean, he's, he gives us the gospel. You don't garner favor. You don't garner favor or anything. You don't garner anything from God 
by depriving yourself of the very things that God has given you to be a blessing for you. Think of it this way. Um, Many Christians, Protestant and otherwise, uh, participate in that, in that season of Lent, right? You, you may have done it at one point in your life uh, where you, you, the season of self-deprivation uh, where, where you, you forgo some earthly pleasure to refocus your life on God. So you, it might be, you know, you skip a meal during this time and during that meal time when you normally would eat, you, you pray, or you, you, you give up a certain TV show, or you give up, you know, whatever it is, and you want to spend time focusing and praying on God. And while there, there's wisdom in that, like if we, again, if we're a culture that is more prone to overindulgence, there's wisdom in giving up something for a time to refocus our lives on God, to, make, to take stock of our lives and make sure that we're not following something else, we're not following a different master. But the beauty of the gospel is God doesn't require nor even desire us to live a total life of self-deprecation. He doesn't, he doesn't want that for his people. And that's the issue at hand. That's the issue at, really with legalism. Like, like elsewhere in all of church history, you have, a, in Timothy here, you have a, a false teacher, you have a liar who's saying, we have to add something to the gospel here. Jesus isn't enough for you to receive God's grace. And if you add anything to the gospel, Paul realized, as should we, if you add anything to the gospel, well, it's not the gospel anymore. If it's not just God, if it's not the work of Jesus on the cross alone, then it's not good news. Because no matter, whatever you add, whatever requirement you add to the gospel, if you're trying to do that to earn God's favor, you will never live up (laughs) You will never live up to what he requires of you. So if you add anything, it becomes nothing. It becomes basically like the law of old, which is just a a burden that was too heavy to bear, which ultimately was meant to show us it was too heavy to bear. After all, there, you know, many of you know that famous first question from the the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is the non-Presbyterian part where I'm going to do a little call and response. Ready? What is the chief end of man? Yeah, there we go. A man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? That's, that's, that's the purpose of life. Enjoy, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, John Piper calls this Christian hedonism, um, which, is, which is a great term. Uh, but basically, it's delighting in God through his creation. And what a wonderful reality that that's, that's our, our faith, that we get to, that God the God of the universe, our, our creator, our savior, he delights in our delight of what he gives us. He delights in our delight. It's, it's like a, a parent who gives a, a gift to their child on Christmas. Like your, your joy as the parent is to get to see their eyes light up and begin to play with this thing. How, how disappointing is it when they start playing with the box? <laughs> and not the toy. I did that as a kid. I, I had a farmhouse, uh, and I, I, my parents, I was so happy about this farmhouse, but it, you know, some assembly required. And so when my dad started building this thing, I went and played with the box. He finished, and I just wanted to play with the box. How disappointing is that? God wants us to delight in the things that he, he gives us. Paul continues. He, he says, these these are gifts that aren't to be abstained from. Rather, they're, they're to be received with thanksgiving. We should thank God for these things. It's a, it's a very subtle argument. He's, he's not just making a, 
He's not just making a, a, a counterclaim. He's not saying, don't forsake these things, do these things. That's not what he's doing. It's not just a complete 180. He, but he specifically says, look, God created these things for you. To reject them is to, re- to reject the giver of those things. To reject the things that God has given is to reject the God who's given them. So, what do we do with all this? How, how, do, we, um, how do we apply this first century polemic against asceticism to a 21st century culture that struggles with overindulgence, right? Paul's dealing with a very different culture than we are. How do we, how do we deal with this? Well, there's three ways. First off, we have to understand that the reality of the church is that it's not perfect. We're not perfect as individuals or as a community. No matter how close we, we try to get, we're, we're just not perfect. We're a congregation of sinners. Um, and in the midst of that congregation of sinners, there are, there are outlaws in, in doctor's clothing. Um, and Paul is addressing this ultimate reality for us. Uh, Jesus addresses this reality elsewhere uh, when he says, uh, I think y'all, y'all might have read this, I was looking at sermons but, uh, recently, but Jesus says elsewhere, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Apostasy is a real thing. But Paul's saying, and Jesus is, is implies here, like, don't be alarmed by it. If you truly have faith, you will not depart from it. If you have faith in Christ, you will not depart from it because it's not something you made. It's something that was given to you. Those who do depart are just like Dr. John Wilson. They're dressed the part. They got a nice suit, a nice lab coat. They learned how to sew someone up um, and, and, and stitch people up, probably from himself. <laughs> um, but they just don't have their credentials. They don't have faith. This, while it could be kind of scary, uh, should be an immense encouragement to us. I, I, want, I want you to be encouraged by this. This is not something new. This is not something foreign. This is not some strange product of American Christianity that, that God didn't really account for. No, this is a part of God's mysterious plan to sanctify his church, to sanctify his bride, to make her more lovely. And so take faith, take hope. And take comfort if you're confronted with this, 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 this difficult situation. It will be hard, yes, but be comforted to know that it's all a part of God's sovereign plan, that he is sovereign in every situation. He's not just sitting there watching and waiting, but he is active. He's, as, as the story goes, he's not a divine clockmaker, but he is active in his creation. He is active specifically in his, in his church. And if you have faith in him, well, that's a gift from him. That's something he provided you. And you can know if you have faith that he will provide for you. He will preserve you in his walk with him. And we can be sure of that because we can read in, first, uh, in Philippians 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. He starts it and he finishes it. Well, the second point we can get um, from this passage, um, the second way we can apply it, is that we need to understand that the false teachers 
um, lies, what they're trying to convince this church of, um, the, the problem isn't with stuff. The problem is with our heart. The problem isn't with marriage or food. It's not that you can't not get married or you can't not eat food. You, if you want to not eat bacon, by all means, don't eat bacon. Um, that's okay. Um, but be aware of your heart attitude. The problem's not with the stuff. The problem's with us. One of the most um, mis-often passages in all of Scripture, um, you probably know it. it, comes from this very epistle, 1 Timothy 6, right? Um, it's most often quoted as, the money is the root of all evil, Right? But it's, that, that is missing some very important context because the reality, the verse is, the love of money is the root of all evil. The, the nuance that Paul is putting there is, is, is slight, but it's extremely important for understanding Paul's theology here and elsewhere that the problem isn't the stuff. God is the giver of the stuff. He's the giver of good stuff and good gifts. But the problem is when we elevate the stuff, to the level of God, when it becomes more important or as important as God in our own lives. And both the ascetic, both the, the guy who's trying to deny himself, is elevating stuff. It's saying it, this stuff is more important. This stuff is as important as God's grace in my life. The, the legalist, uh, the, the person who overindulges, they all elevate the stuff to the level of God. You see, gift, God is the giver of the stuff. He's the giver of the money, and he gives only good gifts. All that we have is a gift from God. It's therefore good. It's our own short-sightedness. It's our own short-sightedness. It's our own sin that prevents us from seeing how we are to turn the stuff back to him to use the stuff in service to him and to glorify him to glorify him and not to glorify ourselves our issue our problem is that we love stuff and we like to enshrine ourselves on these these thrones of trinkets in pursuit of our own glory in reality god gives us these things so that we that we get as a magnifying glass so we can see his glory better and so it doesn't matter if you have a lot of stuff or if you have a little stuff. It doesn't matter if you have a big house or a small house. It doesn't matter uh, if you have a, a paycheck that's you know, CEO big or McDonald's sm- uh, fry cook small. Like That's in my notes. So those of you who are uh, at uh, Sunday school, like that was totally like by chance to hear that what is the, the um, minimum wage was $1.16, right? Is that right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter how small it was or how big. It doesn't matter if your house is, where is it, 1,400 square feet, right? Like, it doesn't matter what that is. It, if you, it's given to you to honor God. Your home is meant to be an instrument to God's glory. We practice hospitality. I didn't know until I came here that that was going to be the Sunday school. That's awesome. But our home is, is meant to be used for hospitality. Have you, have you, has your neighbor, not just your next-door neighbor, but the guy across the street and catty-corner to you and three-door down, have they been in your home? Have you served them a meal? Have you sat down with them? Do you know their names? Do you know what's going on in their lives? Our home is to be, used that, be that tool that we use for hospitality. That paycheck, whether again, whether it's big or small, is meant, uh, is, is given to us and meant for God's glory. And so it's meant to be given from abundantly. And so it doesn't matter if you can give thousands of dollars or like, like what we read in Scripture, just a penny. 
doesn't matter. It, it's meant to glorify God that we would give abundantly from where, what we have from our own context. All things, Paul says, all things are created for us to have and enjoy and to give back to God. But it is important that we, we, we do note the context, right? It's important for us to understand the context of what Paul is talking about here. Paul is instructing Timothy in, in what to say in response to those who want to add unnecessary restrictions to the Christian life, right? He's not that these people are saying you can't do certain things if you're a Christian. Um, he is encouraging Timothy to teach about Christian liberty. All things are good for the Christian because God gives all things. Um, and so it's, it's important to, to understand the, the context because that puts, a, puts some limiters, puts some boundaries on the message. Um, here he's encouraging them in their Christian liberty because that's what they needed. Paul elsewhere um, has words concerning those who, like in our culture, would overindulge. Uh, in Romans 1, Verse 26, Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did they do with that? They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshipped the stuff rather than the, the giver of the stuff. The instruction for, to those in Romans 1 that what they needed was an exhortation to practice wisdom. Hey, maybe you should give up some stuff. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't do certain things. But to Timothy, to Timothy, it's, hey, you need to understand that th- those things aren't inherently sinful. Those are good things. Those are things that can be celebrated so long as they're, they're done with thanksgiving, so long as they're done with, a, with an eye and with a purpose to glorify God, enjoy the liberty you have in Christ. Paul can say that, can say, enjoy the liberty you have in Christ, and in the same breath say, hey, also, you know, be careful about loving the creation a little too much. Remember, those things can enslave you if you're not careful, which kind of leads us into our third point. It's, it's important that we understand that balance. We, it's important to understand the, the boundaries that God has given us, um, to understand the boundaries, really even the context of this passage that there are boundaries to Christian liberty and are boundaries to Christian wisdom. And we have to understand those um, and to adjust the way we approach all of life, right, uh, in response to that understanding of those boundaries. You know, the, the, what is it, the truth is rarely at the extremes, right? It's, it's, it, there are boundaries. Um, there's an article that was published some time ago in, uh, in Psychology Today, and they tap into the root of this problem in our own culture. Um, they, they write, Our culture valorizes extremes. You can never be too rich or too thin is a persistent message. People are no longer capable of watching just one favorite TV show. They binge on whole seasons at a time, forgoing sleep and other basic needs. If you're a real estate junkie, you can gawk at garish celebrity compounds with 21 bathrooms or like Elon Musk, right, uh, 100-square-foot microhouses where you just give everything up and live in a tiny house. Many people have no problem downing a Hardee's Monster Thick Burger, that's 1,300 calories, or, and this is the longest food name of all time, or a Sonic Peanut Butter and Cookie Dough Dream Master Blast, which is 1,900 calories. Some people have no problem with that, but others, Others would recoil in horror at a teaspoon of added sugar or a gram of gluten. Everything that happens to anyone is super awesome or the period, worst period thing, period, ever, period. It's one of the two. 
you know, chalk it up to common grace that psychology today would land on a truth that is so, so prevalent in the gospel, right? It's not about the extremes. It's, it's, it's where where's, um, God called us. How can we best, what is the best tools by which we can glorify our God? Unfortunately, we can't say that our, our generation's greatest philosopher, Nickelback, landed at the same, same conclusion when he wrote... I'm through with standing in lines, the clubs, I never, I'll never get in. It's like the bottom of the ninth, and I'm never going to win. This life hasn't turned out quite the way I want it to be. I want a brand new house on an episode of Cribs and a bathroom I can play baseball in and a king-sized tub big enough for 10 plus me. I want a new tour bus full of old guitars, my own star on Hollywood Boulevard, somewhere between Cher and James Dean is fine for me. And he says this, I'm going to trade this life for fortune and fame. I'd even cut my hair and change my name. What a sad thing to live for, right? Money, girls, a tour bus of, of guitars. He goes on in the song, he talks about taking pills out of a Pez dispenser. This is all that he's living for. The problem with the song, other than the pills in the Pez dispenser, that's another story, but the problem with the song is the tour bus was full of old guitars isn't necessarily bad. What's bad is that he's made that his goal. He's made that his purpose. He's made that his chief end, as it were. He's made that his ultimate goal. And he's willing to give all that he's, he has. He's willing to change his very identity. I'd cut my hair and change my name. I'm going to trade this life for fortune and fame. He's willing to, to give everything he has to change his very identity, who he is. For the stuff, the stuff that will never satisfy. And you know, we're, we're good church people, right? We may not be living to pop pills from a Pez dispenser. We may not be living even for our own star on Hollywood Boulevard. But we do often catch ourselves living for those things that, if we're honest, are probably more attainable. For the house, for the car, for the next promotion, for the job, for the, the perfect retirement, for the perfect family the obedient kids, right? We find ourselves living for those things, but they cannot satisfy because they were never meant to. They were never meant to. They're the lab coat, right? They're the, they're the coat that makes you think that what you're putting your trust in is, is good and right, but in reality, it's stealing from you. It's not, it's not the doctor. It's not the credentials. It's not the, the face of our Savior that, that is alone the only thing in this world that can satisfy what we need. And so instead of focusing on the stuff, instead of focusing on the box, right, that we get from Christmas, instead of focusing on that, let's focus on the giver of good gifts. Let's focus on the face of our Lord and Savior. And let's focus on the credentials, because he alone has them. Our creator God who, who died in our stead. Let's focus on the giver of good gifts. The Christian life is not supposed to be one of deprivation. God wants us to enjoy the things he gives us. That's a wonderful truth. But he wants us to enjoy those gifts as we turn them back to his glory. As we turn the joy that we receive back to him. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do we glorify him? Through the the wonderful blessings that he's given us. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose is the one who gives 
May the Lord, the giver of all good gifts, be blessed by our worship. May we never forget Christ's work on the cross that enables us to, to enjoy the many blessings he bestows on us. Beloved, will you pray with me? Father God, we so often follow the stuff. Um, we, we, we focus on the wrong thing. And so, Lord, help us to, help us to correct course. Help us to major on the majors that were and minor on the minors and focus on you because there's no greater sight than your loving face embracing us. There's no greater sight than your son who died for us and the wounds that he, he still bears into eternity for us, for our, for our salvation. Lord, help us to focus on that and help us, help us to bring glory to you with the many blessings that you have given us. In your son's precious and holy name.